We're super glad that you're here and gathered with us this morning. We're going to dive into the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, if you want to pull it out, if you have an app on your phone, you can go ahead and open it up, and we will be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. And we are going to continue in a series uh, through the parables. So two weeks ago, we started through the parables of Jesus. And uh, just so you know, if you ever, if you miss a teaching or anything, if you miss a Sunday, you can always listen to uh, the teachings on our podcast, either through the website or very soon, it'll be, you can like subscribe through iTunes. It's going to be amazing. Uh, so if you, if you podcast through iTunes, you can subscribe to the, the teachings that way. But what we're going to pick up is so Matthew 13, 44. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he had found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. That's the disciples. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning and want to engage with uh, what you've said, what you've communicated to us in the scriptures that was not only relevant to the disciples who first heard it, but has been relevant to your church since that day. And so the the Words have been faithfully passed along to now meet us here on this Sunday morning in Spokane in 2017. And we know that they're relevant for us today. We know that they're impactful for us today. And I pray that as we engage with them, you would show us exactly what that is, what that impact is, what that relevance is, how that shapes who we are. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, what we have here is there's three parables that we're going to dive into And it's three parables Jesus says about the kingdom of heaven. And uh, this week, I had a really hard time preparing for this because the first two parables seem really disconnected from the third one. I mean, there's like a common theme in the first two, and then the third one's about fishermen and bad fish and good fish and weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I was like, okay, well, I got to kind of focus on one or I don't know how to do this. And so as uh, as I've worked it out through the week, I, I think I've hopefully come to a better place to understand what Jesus is actually driving at. Because uh, the, what we've kind of said is the, the purpose of parables is uh, to, for Jesus to help us understand a deeper truth that otherwise would be hard to grasp. That's been kind of our operating definition of parables, that they, they help us understand a deeper truth that would otherwise be hard to grasp. And Jesus tells us a, a parable and says that the kingdom of heaven... Um, which is a synonym for the kingdom of God. He says it's, a, it's like treasure hidden in a field. And so I just want to take a brief side note and the whole language of kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. Because we, uh, 
the last three weeks have used it interchangeably. And I know the first time I read Matthew's gospel, I'm like, well, why does he use kingdom of heaven while, while Luke and John and Mark, they use kingdom of God? Why is that? Well, we have to remember is that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And even today in Orthodox Jewish circles, there's such a reverence for the name of God that you can't write it down. You can't write G-O-D in Orthodox Jewish settings. You write G-D. And that's why in, in, your, in your Bibles, um, this, was, this was, has been always true, um, that the Hebrew proper name for God, which is yod Veh hav yod Hey, Vav, Hey, Yahweh, is, is instead of being put on the page as Yahweh, the proper name of God, it's put on the page as Lord, because there's this reverence for the proper name of God. And this has been true of Jewish circles since the original audience. And so what Matthew is doing is he's being reverent with the name of God. And so instead of using the, the phrase kingdom of God, he's using the phrase kingdom of heaven. But we see the way that, that Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven and text for the kingdom of God, they're, they're synonymous phrases. So everything that you've heard us teach on, um, probably for the last nine months, when, when we engage with the idea of kingdom of God, think of kingdom of heaven as being overlapping. The, the language can sometimes be problematic because in American English, we think of heaven as like this place you go when you die. But when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about being here and now, something that we can engage with that's nearby, and it's something that is to come. So that's a brief side note. And if you have more questions about it, I'd love to talk to you with you afterwards about it. But Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden, a, hidden in a field that a man finds. It, it's like the man is, is out on a walk one day and he sees in a field treasure. And it's such a good treasure that he's like, I gotta, I gotta buy that field so that I can get that treasure. So he goes home and he sells everything he has in order to obtain the field and the treasure that's in the field which actually prompts a whole lot of questions. Like, isn't that kind of unethical? Uh, I mean, why doesn't he go tell the guy who owns the field, hey, I was going to buy this from you, but you got this amazing treasure, so you should know that you have a treasure there. Which are good questions. Um, but I think in asking them, we, we better understand the purpose of the parables and how Jesus uses parables. Because Jesus is driving a, a point, but the point isn't necessarily a, a moral commentary on how you should go about purchasing property. Jesus' point is that this man is willing to give up everything in order to buy this field, to get the treasure, to obtain this treasure. And the treasure is not earthly possessions. It's not gold. It's not silver. It's not the Benjamins. It's the kingdom of God. Thank you for laughing. <laughs> I did cut out a lot of cheesy jokes. So there's like three of them in here, but yeah. Thanks, Brendan. Thank you. Uh, this man who buys this field, he's willing to give up absolutely everything because he saw the value of the treasure in the field. And, and this idea, this theme of the value of the treasure, the value of the kingdom, Jesus reinforces his point with the second parable. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who was searching for valuable pearls. And once he found this, this most valuable one, he went away and he sold everything that he had in order to buy this most valuable one. And that pearl was a treasure more valuable than anything else that he had. That pearl was the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus here, in two parables, he uses language that his disciples would have been able to easily understand and easily remember. He teaches us something very profound. 
which is the, the value of the kingdom of heaven. How valuable was the kingdom of heaven to these two characters? It was the most valuable thing that, that they could have possibly thought of. It was, it was more valuable than anything that they owned. Nothing was more valuable than the kingdom. No, no possessions, no money, no 401k, no job, no safety, no comfort, no relationship, no pleasure. Nothing was more valuable than the kingdom. And well, you might say, well, yeah, duh. Because if I pass out a test here this, this morning, which I'm not going to do, so don't worry, but if I pass out a test that had one question on it, which is, what is more valuable than the kingdom? All of us would answer nothing. I, I think we all understand that from a logical point of view. But what I've tried to do this week, and this has been very, very difficult, is try and ask the question, well, what if I hired an external evaluator? What if I hired someone to come and take a look at my life and ask that question? What does is, what is Matt Karsh value the most? Looking at my time, looking at what I put effort to, look at what I put thought to, what I put my resources to, what I put my home to, what I do at work. If someone were to evaluate all those things, what would they find I value the most. I hope at the end of it what they would find is that I value the kingdom above everything. But I'm actually not convinced that every single day of every single year that that would be what they find. And what if someone did that for you? What if, what if we hired an external evaluator to come and look at what you value most? It's a, kind of a difficult question. Yeah. We'll, we'll circle back to it at the end. Jesus goes on in his teaching and says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. It's kind of like a big shift from pearls and treasures. And as I, as I sat down to think through these texts, like I mentioned, I, I had a hard time thinking about what do these things have in common? Why is Jesus saying these things back to back? Why, does, why is this happening right next to each other? But Jesus is a masterful teacher, so surely there's some sort of point behind it. Surely there's something that he's driving at. And as is normal, the way that we do it as a teaching team here, so on any given weekend, you might see myself or Matt Deason or Tracy up here opening the scriptures. We send out our notes to one another and get feedback. And I got feedback and like, still, I still don't get it. And I had a really great conversation with Austin uh, yesterday morning. I think he really helped me come to a, a better understanding of, of what Jesus is driving at that hopefully I think we can all share in together. Uh, but as we look at Jesus' parable of the net, uh, there's some really interesting things going on because Jesus talks about a net catching all kinds of fish and then talks about the ultimate separation of those fish. And, and the question arises, what, are those, what do all those things have in common? Well, in the second parable, uh, it's very similar to the parable that we heard last week. If you remember back to last week, G uh, Jesus talks about wheat and weeds, uh, or the parable of the, the wheat and the tares. And there's this field that a farmer owns, and he grows wheat in it, and then an enemy comes and sows uh, bad seed in it, and then weeds grow up, and then the, the farm worker's like, hey, do you want us to go rip up the weeds? And the farmer says, no, don't rip up the weeds. Uh, we're going to wait till the harvest, and then we'll pull everything up, and then we'll separate it at that point. It, it's very similar to what we get here in the parable of the net. And Jesus says that there's a net, and it catches all kinds of fish, which we should understand to be people. And so Jesus says that it catches big fish, and small fish, and white fish, and black fish, and Mexican fish, and Polynesian fish, all kinds of fish. And it's beautiful. 
It's an absolutely beautiful image of what the kingdom of heaven is like. What we get in Revelation is this promise that in the age to come, there will be people from every tribe and nation and tongue who will worship God together, which is a beautiful vision. And as Jesus is talking to his disciples, that would have been radical because he's talking to a group of 12 Jewish men who, in large part, believed that the kingdom was all about the Jewish nation. And for them, the idea that even expanding it outside of of Israel would have been radical. And so to teach them that the, the net actually catches all kinds of fish is a pretty radical thing that they probably didn't even understand on the front end. Maybe, I think, came to understand it later down the line, like in Acts, when, they're, when they engage with people from all over the world. And so what I think Jesus is doing is helping them, uh, preparing them for stuff that's going to happen in the future. Jesus is also talking to them because they're a mixed group of people right there. Uh, if you know anything about the, the, the disciples, they're not the type of people that you would normally put together. So you have someone who's uh, Simon the Zealot, which is this technical term for like what we would call a terrorist, practically. Uh, Simon the Zealot is someone who would have fought to overthrow Roman rule using violent force. That's one of the guys in the group of 12. And then one of the other guys in the group of 12 is Matthew the tax collector, who was viewed as a traitor because he, he, he'd sold out his, his Jewish heritage in order to work for the Romans. And the only way that he could make money was by overcharging his fellow Jewish citizens. So imagine that like small group dynamic. If, you were, if there's 12 people and you have one guy who probably was at least in meetings in killing tax collectors and you have a tax collector in the same meeting, that's a beautiful image of the sorts of all kinds of fish that Jesus is talking about. There's Jews and Gentiles, men and women, doctors, lawyers, tax collectors, zealots, poor, foreigner, all kinds of people. And this was a revolutionary thing. And, and so there's this beautiful, it's, it's a wall tearing down, it's a unifying, it's, uh, Jesus is renewing creation. The, the nature of the kingdom of God, it renews creation because the net is drawing in all kinds of people to make a new humanity. This is what we're told later in scripture. And, and that's beautiful. And that, and that work is ongoing in the world today. If uh, you don't know, 10% of every dollar that comes in River's Edge, uh, we, we put back out the door. We at least earmark it to go back out the door for either justice work or mission work locally and globally. And so uh, there's a couple things that you, as you're a part of River's Edge, are a part of that you may or may not even know about, which is kind of why I want to bring it up, because we should know about these things. And if you're new here, if you're like, why are there so many flags around? Well, let me answer that question too. So we rent this building from uh, West Central Multicultural Church. Uh, which is an amazing group of people who are rooted here in the West Central community, and each of the flags represent families as a part of their church. And if you're like, what's the leg one in the back? It's the Isle of Man, which I had never even heard of before. But that's, the mo- that's usually the most common one. So even the church that, that we rent from, they, they, I think, really well represent this picture of the beautiful kind of unifying nature of the kingdom of God. Uh, but some of the things that River's Edge is involved in... Uh, in kind of drawing in more people around the world, uh, one of those things is in the Philippines. Uh, Grace City Fellowship, is that right? Grace City Fellowship in Quezon City, which is outside of Manila, uh, is a church that we've partnered with, and we give funds to them to rent out a basketball court once a week, and so they play basketball with kids from the high school and, and share the gospel. And 
because their building is not large enough, they're actually having to plant another church because more and more people have come to faith as a result of this outreach and other things, that they're planting another church. And that's in part because of the partnership that you guys are involved in. That happens in the Philippines. It also happens in, in Lesotho in South Africa. And so Lifa Kolasang and Manyat Sang, which don't ask me to spell any of that stuff, but I think I said it right, is another guy that we've partnered with. And what they did in Manyat Sang, and Tracy was there, uh, they, they bought an old pub and converted the pub into a church building. And at least one time, maybe more times, but at least one time, a guy came to the pub to get drunk and they realized, oh, it's a church and they're working on it. And for the very first time, that guy heard the gospel and, and prayed to Jesus as, as a follower. Hey, I want to follow Jesus. So he came with this intent to get drunk at a bar and encounters the gospel in the meantime. That's, that's a picture of the net catching in all kinds of fish. And it happens in Uganda too. Matt Deason just got back from Uganda. And I had the privilege to go a few years ago and Deason just got to go a couple weeks ago. And in Uganda, there's, there's all kinds of amazing things happening. Uh, we got to go to Arua, which is in the north, and be a part of just going to schools and doing like um, skits, which I'm a really bad dancer, but I did the skit and, and danced in front of lots and lots of little kids. But they planted a church uh, in Arua using some of those experiences as the basis, and more and more people have come to faith getting baptized, following Jesus, walking with Jesus, seeing miraculous things happen. And that happens every single day all over the world. And it happens here in Spokane as well, every single day. And it's a beautiful picture of what the kingdom is doing as a net drawing in all kinds of people, all kinds of fish from all over, from places near and far. And, and all kinds of things draw people in. Uh, people are drawn into the church for all kinds of reasons. And, and the, the vision is beautiful. But at the end of the day, not everyone wants to sell everything for the treasure if the treasure is Christ. And that's just the reality of things. Uh, people are attracted to the gospel for different reasons, but the, the church is a mixed bag. Uh, some people are attracted to the gospel for power, for money, for social status, for pride. And some people, when, when they're drawn in by Christ, they come to see that the Christ that they find isn't just this happy-go-lucky life coach who, who wants to give you stuff, but, but Jesus is, is the crucified one who, who, whose main call to you is to come and die. It is to come and pick up your cross and follow him and die. Which is radical. The reality is that, that some people, they're, they're initially drawn into the kingdom, but they're unwilling to be crucified with Christ. They're unwilling to die with Christ and have new life with them. Because make no mistake, the treasure is to die and rise with Christ. The, the fish that are thrown away, they're ones who have chosen to stay that way. They've chosen to shun Christ. They've chosen earthly treasure or distraction or possessions or what have you instead of the treasure, which is the kingdom. And that's where the parables meet, I think. Because Jesus is talking to his disciples who have left everything to follow him. They've, they've left homes, they've left jobs, they've left families, they've left safety to follow Jesus. That group of 12 that he's talking to, they've, they've done it. 
And when he speaks to his disciples about good fish and bad fish, he's preparing them because there's at least one in their midst who's, who's going to betray Jesus for silver, for earthly treasure. And so, so Jesus is speaking to a group of mixed fish. Now, a key to note is that the judgment that, that Jesus talks about here, it's, a, it's an eschatological judgment. It's an end-time judgment. Eschatological just means that the, it has to do with the end of the age. It's not the sorts of judgments that you and I get to make. It's not the sorts of judgments where, like, I don't like that guy. He's probably a bad fish. He's probably getting thrown, you know. Those are not the judgments that we get to make. Jesus is talking about an eschatological end time before the throne room of God kind of judgment. Where, where we face God and we lay out our entire lives before him. And, and so the key uh, in, in these parables is, is how, how the kingdom, being valuable, like, like treasure, it, it informs how we understand what are good fish and bad fish. So, and you may be thinking to yourself, what does it mean to value the kingdom? I mean, that's kind of a good abstract idea, but what does it actually mean? Well, I think, and this has been really helpful for me, what I think one way to answer that is by saying that the way to measure the value of something is to see what you're willing to sacrifice for it. So, is that how I wrote it? The way to measure the value of something is to show what you're willing to sacrifice for it. So, we see uh, the value of something by how much we're willing to pay for it or give up or sacrifice. Um, so I'm willing to sacrifice $2 for a cup of coffee, sometimes $3 if it's really good. Uh, I'm willing to sacrifice some sleep in order to work out because I want to be healthy. I'm willing to sacrifice um, like a bigger paycheck from a sales job because I want to work at a university. There's certain things that I, I'm willing to sacrifice because I value other things more. So we make decisions uh, about value and worth all the time by what we're willing to sacrifice or give up. It's not always money, and it's not always time, and it's not always any one thing, but it's a willingness to give something up, to sacrifice something that reveals its worth. So the question, as I asked earlier, is if we examine our own lives or had someone examine our lives, what what would be found that we truly value? What do you truly value? Also, this definition of value, I think, is extremely helpful when we think of how God values us. And so we can't talk about any of this without seeing that how this informs how God sees each and every one of us. Because the way to measure something is, the way to measure the, mal- way to measure the value of something is to show what you're willing to sacrifice for it. And God is willing to sacrifice himself for you. That's how much you value to God. And so Jesus doesn't call you to something that's uh, abstract or, or different than what he does already. Jesus calls you to follow him. He models this for us already. Jesus calls us to be with him and to be like him. So this call to come and die isn't just go and die, but it's to come follow him and die. And, and so as I close, what I, what I want us to think about one more time is just the original hearers of Jesus' parables. Because I think they help us frame how we understand this in our own lives. Because if Jesus' call is to value the kingdom above all else, and, and then we should ask ourselves, what makes the difference between good fish and bad fish? Uh, what, what is the difference between good fish and bad fish? 
And I think there's two figures that we can take a look at in order to understand that. So in that group of 12, two of the 12 people, one's named Peter and one's named Judas Iscariot. And both commit really grave sins. So Judas, uh, as you know, he betrays Jesus for silver. And we can speculate on all his motives, but we also know that he was siphoning off money from the disciples even before that. But Judas betrays Jesus for silver, and uh, he betrays, uh, really, he betrays God himself in, in probably the most direct way possible. He betrays God's Messiah. And so Judas was drawn in, he was caught up in the net for three years, and then in the end, he reveals that his heart has remained unchanged. He betrays Jesus, and in response, he, he ends up killing himself. And Judas, as, as far as we can see, remains unrepentant and resistant to Jesus' call to the cross. Judas is unwilling to follow Jesus to the cross. And let's be honest, we're not that different than Judas. We don't, we don't want to admit it because we would probably rather identify with other biblical figures rather than Judas. But there's so many times when you and I have valued silver over the treasure of the kingdom. There's so many times that we have valued other things over the way to the cross. But the good news is that we don't have to stay there. Let's, let's consider the other disciple, Peter. Because Peter commits a grave sin as well. Uh, Peter, as Jesus is being tried and as Jesus is being beaten, he gets asked, hey, don't you, aren't you with the Jesus guy? He's like, no, I, I don't know him. And that, that happens not only one time, not only two times, but three times. People are like, hey, don't you, aren't you associated with the whole Jesus guy? He's like, nope, don't know him. That's, I, nope, not from Galilee, not, not my guy. So if Judas' sin is, is betrayal, then Peter's sin is betrayal and abandonment in the hour of Jesus' deepest need. But God knows Peter's heart, and Peter actually doesn't abandon Jesus forever. There is grace for Peter's sin. Because after the resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter and actually restores him. He reverses the whole three times Jesus, uh, three times Peter denied Jesus, three times Jesus restores Peter to a place of honor and influence, so much so that Peter becomes this rock for the early church. So much so that Peter, on the day of Pentecost, which is only 50 days after the experience of him abandoning Jesus, only 50 days later, Peter is the primary leader of the church preaching to thousands who come to faith. Which we don't even, I don't think we even have a mindset for. Because imagine if one Sunday I got up here and be like, yep, never met Jesus, don't know him, never talked to him, not my guy. And I walked out. And then two and a half months later, I was like at this, this presentation with thousands of people talking about who Jesus is. We would not allow someone to do that. But that is what God allows Peter to do. That is the grace that God has for Peter to use him in his kingdom. And so as we come to the table today, what we, what we do every week here is we, we receive communion. And I think it's a beautiful reminder. It's a beautiful symbol. It's a beautiful presence of God in our midst. And I think there's two things that we ought to consider as we come to the table today. The first is that the bread and the cup remind us of Jesus' call to the way of the cross. So as we come to the table today, what we're reminded of is Jesus' sacrifice and modeling all of this for us. Jesus valued the kingdom above his own life. Jesus valued you above his own life. 
And that is, that is present among us in the bread and the cup. That Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, and he, gave it, he gives it to the mixed group of disciples and said, this is my body broken for you. And after supper, he takes a cup and says, this is the new covenant sealed in my blood. It's that same group, it's that same audience. So as we come to the table today, my encouragement is that as we receive communion, which we're going to do a little bit differently today, that, that it would remind us of, of Jesus' call to the way of the cross. But, but secondly, we ought to all know that grace exists for those of us who've fallen short. Absolutely no one in this room is perfect. Absolutely none of us have, have done it perfectly. And so we all need God's grace. And so as you look to your left and your right, you're like, well, that person didn't screw up as bad as I did. Or, or you might be thinking, that person screwed up way worse than I did. God's grace is sufficient for all of that. It's sufficient for every single one of those things. Whether it was a year ago or a week ago or an hour ago, God's grace is sufficient for that. Which is what we're reminded of when we come to the table. Is, is that those things don't run out. We can come back every single week to come to the table of the Lord and receive from God. That this is a symbol of his grace imparted to us.